Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, August 2nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, vaccine advocates chuck the carrot and reach for the stick. Then the peer committee chief speaks out on his organization's latest report. And context falls by the wayside as the critical race theory debate heats up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. With the Delta variant on the rise, states with low vaccination rates are scrambling to handle outbreaks and high hospitalizations. Some business and health experts say it's time for vaccine and mask mandates. Shalina Chutlani of the Gulf States Newsroom has this story. As Louisiana Public Health Officer Joseph Cantor said last week, the public health emergency around COVID-19 is not even close to ending. It's as bad now in Louisiana as it has ever been at any point during this pandemic. And I say that still with some degree of shock that we're back here. COVID-19 case counts in Louisiana are reaching new record highs for the year. And Mississippi and Alabama are also seeing an explosion in cases and hospitalizations that are overburdening the medical system. Mississippi State Epidemiologist Paul Byers said in a conference last week, Normal day-to-day activities, like going back to school, are now risky. We need to have an expectation that we are going to see cases in the school setting. We will see cases among students and we will see cases among teachers. While Gulf states are seeing a slight uptick in vaccinations now, they're still lagging behind most states and seeing the impact of a Delta variant surge among the unvaccinated, including younger people. Health officials announced last week that at least one child died of COVID-19 in both Mississippi and Louisiana. States like Louisiana have tried a carrots approach by incentivizing vaccines through million-dollar lotteries and free fish fry dinners. But some businesses and health experts say it's time to pull out the sticks. It's, it's time to to put the mask back on. Howie Kaplan is the owner of Howlin' Wolf, an entertainment venue in New Orleans. He says he's taken every step to mitigate COVID-19 spread. He sits under numerous fans and air conditioners that drone throughout the venue. He installed these for more ventilation. But now he says everybody's got to mask up. And I think the, the, 
better step for us to take um, is to ask our ask our guests to put their mask back on in, in the interest of safety, if not for themselves, but for the folks around them. Most states in the region are hesitant to say masks are required, but Kaplan says he knows he has the power to enforce a mandate as a business owner and thinks it's the right thing to do in order to stop the spread. We need to stop it. It's a shame that this is a public health issue. We, we, ask, we ask people to make, uh, to make sacrifices on a fairly regular basis for, for their neighbors and for their country. Others in the New Orleans entertainment industry have plans to encourage face coverings. Still, in many settings, masking is a thing of the past. One seafood restaurant owner in the Mississippi Delta said he doesn't even believe in COVID-19. The governors of Mississippi and Alabama have said they will not mandate masks in K-12 schools. So in terms of finding a more permanent solution, Thomas Levise, a sociologist and dean of the School of Public Health at Tulane University, says the mask mandate is not enough. If you choose not to be vaccinated, you have to get tested. In some cases, you can't get an education if you don't get vaccinated. Well, we can do that. There are concert venues, venues, you know, thinking about not allowing people to come to concerts. The Biden administration says federal employees must get tested regularly if not vaccinated. Louise says if mandates don't work in the South, it's time to bring out policies like that at the state level and crack down on the spread of disinformation. The First Amendment doesn't give you the right to yell fire in a crowded movie theater. We have not done a good enough job of aggressively going after the people that are creating the disinformation. And while it's politically contentious, Levis says he also thinks vaccine and mass mandates will eventually have to be implemented across the board in order for the country to finally emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani in New Orleans. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between WWNO in New Orleans, WBHM in Birmingham, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and NPR. Coming up, PR Committee Director James Barber speaks out. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A few weeks ago, the Joint Legislative Committee on Performance Evaluation and Expenditure Review, better known as the Peer Committee, released a report detailing shortcomings within the state parole board. The report highlighted four key issues. First, the parole board paid out large, unauthorized travel reimbursements to members. Second, board members didn't work full 40-hour weeks. Third, the board wasted time by holding unnecessary hearings. And fourth, and most troubling, the parole board failed to provide almost half of eligible inmates a timely hearing. On Mississippi Edition earlier this month, we spoke with Steve Pickett, who chairs the parole board. He framed the alleged violations as technicalities and said the board's operations were fundamentally sound. In 2019, we had 7,974 hearings. There was never a backlog of any cases in 2019. And every month, we completed the docket that was before us at that time. Now, James Barber, who's executive director of the Peer Committee, says Pickett shouldn't shrug off findings from the comprehensive report. Barber speaks with MPB's Desiree Frazier. State law mandates as to when an offender 
should have a parole hearing scheduled. That is within 30 days of their eligibility. And we took a look at the information that was in the Department of Corrections inmate management system to determine whether the parole board is following that 30-day requirement in law. And based on original documents and all of the dates that were entered in those documents, we determined that for 47% of the inmates that were eligible for a hearing did not have a hearing in a timely manner. Stephen Pickett, the chairman of the parole board, said that that issue was due to people who were housed in jails and the information that was needed about the time served in those facilities was not forward to MDOC, and so they were waiting for additional paperwork. During the exit conference for this project, Mr. Pickett raised that issue with our staff, and we explained to him that the analysis that we did did, in fact, include the amount of time that an offender was in a local facility and that we reviewed all of the documents that were available in the inmate management system to do the analysis. So to say that we didn't include some aspect of an offender's stay in prison is not correct. Another issue raised, the second one, presumptive parole. Can you explain what that is briefly? Over the last couple of years, the legislature has enacted several laws to, in effect, reform the state's criminal justice system. One of those bills was passed in 2014, and one aspect of that bill said that an inmate could be released without a hearing of the parole board if the inmate met certain qualifications. For example, if they had not had any kind of serious violation, if there was no objection from the victim or law enforcement, then the inmate could be released without a hearing before the parole board. What we found is the fact that even though some inmates met those conditions, the parole board still conducted 274 hearings for individuals that could have been released from prison through the presumptive parole process. And to us, that was an inefficient use of the parole board's time. And in that case, Chairman Pickett has said that the board doesn't feel anyone should be released without going before them. They're not comfortable with anyone up for parole not having a hearing. If I'm not mistaken, the parole board doesn't enact legislation or set policy for the state. That is the job of the state legislature. Now, the fact that Mr. Pickett and the parole board members maybe don't agree with that is entirely irrelevant. And if he thinks public policy should be changed, then he needs to work with the appropriate committees in the legislature to make that change. But right now, the public policy of the state says that offenders who meet certain conditions can be released without a hearing before the parole board. Okay, unauthorized travel reimbursements. What is that about? State 
travel regulations clearly say that individuals cannot be reimbursed for commuting from their personal residence to their place of business. Those policies have been in place for a very long time. And the state auditor released a compliance review in December of 2020 and noted that at least one parole board member had been reimbursed for commuting to the tune of about $40,000. We only looked at two fiscal years and we found two parole board members who had been reimbursed for travel. It Again, was 20000 and over 6000 Correct. 20000 for one member and 6000 for the other. And that is clearly in violation of state travel policy. And also it was noted that folks aren't working full-time. The board isn't working full-time. That's correct. Parole board members are no different than any other state employee. And the fact that the law says that they're supposed to be full-time and devote their attention to the activities of the board full-time and have no other business interest. So they're supposed to work eight to five just as any other employee of the state is required to do. At the beginning of this project, we were told very clearly by the chairman of the parole board that parole board members did not work on Friday. He volunteered that information. Then for two weeks in October of 2020, our staff observed the activities of the parole board members. We went to hearings. We went to the office when it was opening at the beginning of a workday. We went by the office at the end of the workday. And on most of the days in that two-week period, all of the parole board members themselves were not present, even though their time card for those two weeks indicated that they had worked 40 hours. And can you tell us a couple of the recommendations that you would like to see implemented? We took a look at the parole structure in the contiguous states and saw that they're organized slightly different than we are in Mississippi. For example, a couple of the states use hearing officers to at least be the, the first level of hearing for a potential inmate to be released to make a re recommendation to a parole board. That's one thing that we think the legislature should consider. Some states have nested the parole function within their Department of Corrections and administratively, the department is responsible for the activities of the parole function rather than a separate independent board. That's another option that the legislature should consider. James Barber with the Legislative Peer Committee, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us about this. You're certainly welcome. Coming up, a deeper look at critical race theory. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Let's talk about the latest dumb idea coming 
from the east and west coast. Critical race theory. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't take the chance on critical race theory. We cannot allow it to be introduced. The socialists seek to turn Americans against each other and against this country by introducing critical race theory. I am committed to ensuring that critical race theory is kept out of Mississippi schools. That was Governor Tate Reeves and House Speaker Philip Gunn addressing crowds at the Neshoba County Fair last week. You heard Speaker Gunn characterize a certain theory as socialist. Both men in their remarks also described it as racist. The governor said it, quote, teaches children that they're born racist. Gunn pledged to introduce legislation to ban the teaching of it in Mississippi's public schools. Reeves promises to sign it should it reach his desk. Amidst all this, neither Reeves nor Gunn dwelled at length on what exactly critical race theory is. And Katerina Pasadomo, who is a professor of Southern Studies and Anthropology at Ole Miss, says that's a problem. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. Critical race theory is an advanced legal theory. It is a theory that seeks to explain the embeddedness of racism within our legal system, principally. And it emerged about 40 years ago, you know, when prominent legal scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell and Richard Delgado, among others, it was a a group of scholars who were trying to better understand and articulate uh, how the law functioned differently for people based on their race. So you mentioned that it's an advanced topic. Is this something that would be taught in schools? No, I... (laughs) I always chuckle a little bit when I hear about the scourge of critical race theory in our K through 12 schools. It is not something that is taught in public schools. I encountered critical race theory as a PhD student, but the implications of banning it are practical. So even though, you know, saying we're going to ban critical race theory, it's kind of a moot point because it's, it's not something that, you know, in its true form is actually taught in public schools. Um, banning anything, is there's an intellectual freedom argument there. And there's also, you know, the practical implications of saying, you know, I think the way that a lot of people talk about critical race theory, what they actually mean is talking about race. Um, and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, which I think is something we need to move beyond. <laughs> we should be comfortable talking about race at this point in our nation's history. And when you tell educators and parents and students that we can't talk about race and we can't have an accurate accounting of our country's history, then that does have a chilling effect on on education. I do think that we should be very concerned about the rhetoric and the sort of fervent attachment to this sort of boogeyman idea about critical race theory. It is a, it's a dog whistle. It's not, (laughs) and I think people who are talking about it the way that they are, are being very disingenuous and pretty cynical. Last week, Speaker Philip Gunn was at the uh, Neshoba County Fair and he was uh, discussing critical race theory and he claims that it causes students to become racist or hate themselves. Is that something that critical race theory actually does even in those advanced courses? No, it does not do that. <laughs> and I think that's a disingenuous concern. I can't speak to, to Philip Gunn's beliefs or intentions, but I doubt that, that he believes that that is true either. <laughs> if, if we really want to reckon with our, our country's history and see the way that racism is embedded within laws, you know, 
going back to the Constitution and the Three-Fifths Compromise, Indian removal, the failure of Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws, redlining, right? There's lots of examples that demonstrate the embeddedness of racism within our legal system. Teaching history accurately, though, does not mean that we're teaching anybody to hate themselves or to neglect their their heritage or their upbringing, but it is forcing all of us to account for where we came from so that we can imagine a more prosperous and inclusive future. I was going to ask, uh, what do you think this could mean for Mississippi that has such a deep history of racism and slavery if people are uh, trying to attack critical race theory in a way that would be similar to taking parts of Mississippi's history out of textbooks? I think it's it's analogous to previous attempts that we've seen in the past to um, to whitewash our history or to use scare tactics to label a group of people or educators as communist or socialist. I mean, we're seeing a real revival of that kind of rhetoric. A lot of the people who are reviving that rhetoric claim that the educators or socialist educators, as they say, are are dividing this country. And I, I find that to be tremendously ironic because I think there is nothing more patriotic than understanding your country's history with all of its flaws and challenging it to live up to its ideals. I think Mississippi has a really complicated history. Certainly there's oppression there, but there's also resistance and survival and people fighting for what's right. Um, And I think we should be telling those stories, not just of oppression, but also of people who defied the Jim Crow laws that were trying to prevent them from voting and owning land. Right. So I think we can we can lift one another up, actually, by telling our history more accurately. Is there anything else we might not have touched on that you think is something that a Mississippian should understand about you know, either this specific thing or uh, other issues that are going on right now? I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. Right. So, like I said, I I grew up as a white person in Florida. I uh, had a lot of racial privilege, but I wouldn't have called it that, you know, and I wasn't taught that term in school. I don't think kids are taught that in school now. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school, you know, in my 20s, late 20s, that I I really started reading, you know, reading these some of these authors that I mentioned earlier, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, learning about critical race theory, what it actually is. And it was hard work. I mean, <laughs> if you're learning about critical race theory, you know, from the news, what you're hearing on the news, it's probably overly simplified. Even what I've said today is is a really simplistic explanation of it. So I think if, if you're going to get into a debate about something, then at the very least, you know, you should take the time to educate yourself on what it is so that you know that your position is grounded in, in fact and is not motivated by some impression you got, you know, on the internet. I don't think that that's a proper way to engage in debate. So I would encourage everyone to, if you really care, (laughs) if you're passionate about critical race theory, then go out and and read something by Derek Bell, go out and read something by Richard Delgado. And then, you know, otherwise I would, you know, I would not have this debate because it's, it's much more, it's a lot messier than I think we're pretending it is. Katarina Posadomo is an associate professor of Southern Studies and Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. Katarina, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kobe. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.